This is the Creative Life Show, celebrating being highly creative in a less creative world. I'm Joanna Peters, coach and mentor to professional creatives and creative professionals, and I talk to other creatives, innovators and thinkers about how we create, face down our critics, stay on track, get noticed and paid, and do the work we want to do. And I'm sharing the progress of my own book, all about creative people and how we thrive. Hello and welcome. So the intro to the show promises you updates on my book. And if you've been listening regularly, well, you haven't had one for quite a while. Now, I could use the excuse that I've been busy coaching other creatives to get things done, which is true. Busy with a podcast, which is true, and various other projects. But of course, if I don't prioritise something, it doesn't happen. So this week, I'm off for my own writing retreat. I'm staying in a pretty little village in the middle of England. I'll be meeting a friend some of the evenings, but I'm going to be there to write and think and reflect. I think we instinctively know as creatives the importance of having the right environment. Though, of course, in reality, we usually have to fit things into our busy, messy daily lives around other people and other commitments. But I think it's really essential that we can sometimes find somewhere where we can go deeper, where we can make connections, where we can listen for insights and inspiration and follow our energy. It is the first time I've done something like this and it feels quite high pressure. It's going to be really interesting to see how I actually respond to it. I think it's going to be fantastic, but it might be a complete disaster. (laughs) It's more about taking myself away from all that kind of daily life stuff that's completely necessary and fun and great, but it's work things and home things. And I'm going to see what it's like when I don't have those going on around me. So I'll share a bit more about the experience, maybe here, probably also on the blog at joannapeters.com and on Instagram where I'm joannapeters1. So on to today's show. It's about something I won't be doing very much of this week, and that is communicating. Hello and welcome. So we're talking today about something that can shape whether our day is terrific or frankly awful, whether we get our work out or whether it completely flops. And that's how we communicate. So my guest today is Judy Apps. Judy has just published her fifth book, The Art of Communication, and she's a coach who specialises particularly in the voice and communication skills and how we connect and influence with others. Judy, welcome to The Creative Life show. Now, I know it's easy to start, say, it's to say we're going to talk about communication and immediately I start to roll and the anxiety starts kicking in and the reaction is, oh, it's about networking and I'm going to have to be someone I'm not and I'm going to have to change my body language or, or change something fundamental about me. Now, I know your approach is very different, which is why I've invited you on. <laughs> But for anyone who's listening already and thinking, oh, no, I don't I don't want to think about how I communicate. Why is it so important and really not threatening? Everything we do is communication. We're being bombarded every day, all day by people communicating with us. And I think a big part of my thesis is that often we're being bombarded with words which don't quite communicate, which don't connect with us. So... I think a lot of people have said who've who've actually made it in whatever field they've made it, that just coming to terms with communication skills, with being able to talk to people and connect with people has been very important to them. So if people learn early on 
some more about how to connect with people, how to be easy with people, it'll stand you in good stead for 50, 60 years. And I think often we have, when we think about it in terms of networking or something, we've often had, we've all had bad experiences, haven't we? So if we see that, then of course we see it as negative because we're thinking about the uncomfortable experiences we've had rather than something actually which we can all do very naturally. Yes, I was very interested once when I was, um, I used to hate, but I probably still do feel nervous at times walking into a room that is full of people. And I talked to somebody who was known to be a very good networker. And I asked her how she did it. And uh, I thought that she would come up with all sorts of technical skills about who it was important to approach and, you know, having some sort of goal in mind. And she said, I I just come into the room and I stand there and I, I just go by my instincts, she says. I have no idea. I just perhaps feel drawn to somebody. And it was such a serendipitous sort of explanation. I was quite gobsmacked by it. And um, I think it's a wonderful thing to do, actually. The main thing is to, to know that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens. You might end up with somebody you feel is going to be really tedious and boring. And as a matter of fact, when that's happened to me and I've been in a good state, and a good state to me is I don't mind what happens from this exchange. If I can give something to the other person, that's great. If they give something to me, that's great. And I get into what I feel is, well, nothing's going to happen with this. You know, I might as well be as useful and friendly and helpful as I can. Nine times out of 10, something really valuable for me comes out of that exchange. I think it's fascinating, really, because a lot of people, even without being selfish or pushy, go into networking thinking it's about getting something out of it. Yes, this sort of agenda, which turns, as you say in your book, the agenda's turned into fear often, isn't it? Which then creates our own response. Before we go into that, well, I'm going to say why I invited you on. So there are lots of books out there on how to communicate. You can't go find a bookshop before falling over them. <laughs> there's a lot of their business audience and the sort of same old, same old. So when I got your book in, Judy, it actually seemed quite different, much more creative, much more intuitive. So I started researching Judy and lo and behold, I found out the first, your first degree is literature, isn't it? Followed by professional singing training and an early career as, as a professional singer. And gosh, I went onto your website and you've got a whole page of poems on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Judy, you spent these days, you spend a lot of time in boardrooms and kind of hardcore commercial environments. But what does leading a creative life mean to you? I think it's very, very common for people who are naturally creative. I mean, maybe we all are, but for people who are naturally creative to find it difficult to choose. I often meet people who started with one thing and then went on to another. Somebody who trained as an artist and then suddenly found themselves singing with a band or something. So I think it's quite common to have to be good at more than one of these. It was definitely a huge problem to me. When I was younger, as you can see, I, I went to university to study English because I was seen in, in inverted commas as somebody who was academic at school. And so I, at that age, I thought, oh, it's going to be a terrible waste if I don't use this intellect, which was madness, madness, madness. And yet that was what I'd received really from, you know, music wasn't a serious thing for clever people and so on. Mm, to you, well, what, yes, what does a creative life mean to you at this point in your life? I have to have something on the go. I have to have something that feels 
worth doing. And I quite often castigate myself because to me, in part of myself, having something that means that it feels worth doing, I look at other people who do all this wonderful voluntary work and help the poor and the disabled and all the rest. And I often tell myself, you know, you, Judy, you should be doing some of this, you know, really useful stuff. But actually, I'm always, always looking towards something that is creating, is, is making something. And I think from when I was very young, it was, it was always like that. I had this dream when I was very small that I was going to create something. And I didn't know at that stage whether it was going to be a poem or a dance or a piece of music or, or a beautiful picture. And that, is, that has never stopped. It's, it's never stopped to have something, something on the go. Even when after I had children, and of course, they're the most creative thing you can do, maybe, some people would think. Straight away, I started making babies' clothes, and then I started a little wooden toys industry, and then I started running music classes for toddlers, and then I ran paper mache classes, and, and so on. And it always, it always pays back. When you move to something else, what you've been doing is never a waste. It's never a waste. It's always taken into the next thing. Yes, I, and I love that sense of that that creative force that just is. It's, I see so much and so many of my guests on this show, which is fantastic. Let's go back, and as always, I'm going to ask you about a time, a story of a particular creative challenge that you have hit. Could you take us through it? Well, the, the one I thought of was having told you about all these different ways of being creative. I eventually decided I was going to be a singer and I did win a British Council scholarship to go and study in Rome. And there the whole idea was was I was going to be an opera singer. And I learnt the part of Rosina in the Barber of Seville and I went up to Treviso to do an audition. I can remember it now going into this theatre and how scary it was and standing there and singing an aria and being knocked out in the first round. It was kind of the culmination of, it's just no good. I'm I'm never going to be really good at anything. It was terribly important at that time because for several years I had really kept my focus on singing because I had thought, I can't mess around with different things. I've got to stick to one. And a friend who was quite important to me in my 20s said, you're a bit of a dilettante, aren't you? And I thought, I must not ever be a dilettante. I've got to focus on this one thing. So I had focused on singing. And it had come to, okay, I didn't even get through the first round of an audition. Okay, for the principal part in an opera in the beautiful theatre of Treviso. However, it was that moment when I thought, it's no good, I'm a, I'm a failure. And that word failure just stuck. In fact, it stuck, you know, when I was back in England and I was doing bits of singing with other stuff. And then I had children. What a relief because I didn't have to pretend I had a career anymore. And it stuck. It must have stuck for 15 years. Okay, you know, I love creativity, but I'm a failure. That's interesting. The I am a failure, Not, not I have failed at singing, but I am a failure. And the dreams that came after that of being just ready to step onto stage and I'd left my music behind, you know, those dreams that I'm a failure because it doesn't happen, something goes wrong. So that was, 
that was the challenge. What was it about that particular audition, do you think, that presumably you've been to other auditions, you'd had, you know, wins and failures? I think it was because in Italy, I was studying incredibly hard. I was um, at the Conservatorio in, in Rome, but I also had a most brilliant maestro of singing outside the Conservatoire who taught me singing. And he, um, he suggested that I paid him a sum I could afford and he would give me lessons as and when. And they had turned into lessons every single day. I mean, I even went on Saturday and Sunday for lessons with this guy. So I was really putting my everything into this thing. My boyfriend would say, let's go to the beach on a June day. And I'd say, well, I have to go to my lesson first. You know, <laughs> What an awful girlfriend. So I had really worked it. But at the same time, I wasn't getting many opportunities there for concerts. I did get some, but it, it, it didn't seem as straightforward as, as in England. So I was working incredibly hard, but I wasn't being tested or I wasn't getting my audience very much. And that's why this particular audition, which, you know, it consisted of learning a whole opera part, which is no mean feat. So it was a huge work as well to learn this soprano part. And I suppose it came after, I don't know, probably four years in Italy when I'd been studying so very hard. So I, I think it was just the straw that broke the camel's back, probably, you know, just that. Did that then trigger a move back to Britain and, and moving away from singing? You said you then had got married, had, had a family. No, it didn't. I carried on for two years more, I suppose. And then actually my relationship wasn't going well. And I came back to England because of that. But accompanied by this, this I'm a failure. So you, this story has got, a, has got a point. And you've already said sort of 15 years later, this label is still, still with you. Yes. So, so I carry on living my life. And of course, you know, when I married and had children, that was fantastic. And bringing up children was just amazing. And a lot of women, more than men, have a, have a second bite of the cherry after children because very, perhaps less now than, than then. But I stopped for three or four years when I had children and it felt like a chance to start again. I did an assertiveness course when we moved house to a new area and realized how shy I was and how how difficult I found people very often. And that took me into a whole new story of personal development and learning what makes people tick. So you moved into that, I think that's quite common, isn't it? You, you start it for your own purposes and end up yes. developing it and teaching it because actually you've, it's so important. I found it absolutely fascinating, completely fascinating. And then I gave, I can't remember exactly what it was, I think I gave a talk for, um, for the London Coaching Group. And there was somebody there who, because I was talking about voice, asked me if I would become a voice coach for her company. So then voice crept back in to communication and um, personal development. Then the two things coming together and, and another couple, three, four years and so on, I suddenly began to realize that everything I had done in Italy, all those things I had done with singing, was so incredibly useful. So you get to a middle age, I suppose, when all those failures, if we want to call them that, all those experiences, Everything I'd ever done was suddenly incredibly useful. 
I'm really interested how that goes back to this this sense of I am a failure because I was I suppose it has a couple of parts, isn't it? What the classic would be like, oh, you then succeed and go, oh, I'm not a failure anymore. But actually, it doesn't sound like that from you. It sounds as though it's almost like a re-understanding of what it was. Is it not? I'm that wasn't a failure. It was something else. You, you tell me. How did it? What what was your path through that? Well, the the idea of being a failure. I thought success was to improve my technique and get better and better at this thing called singing. But after I'd done all this work on myself, gone through this whole period of uh, understanding myself and others better, I realized what had stopped me back in the day, back in Italy, wasn't to do with technique at all. It was, it was to do with my mindset. It was to do with my sense of myself. It was, doing, it was to do with trying too hard was to do with being so keen to make success. Even as I say that to you, I'm sort of clenching my fist here. You know, it was, it was to do with, you know, putting, putting the time in. I could have probably done it in a blink of an eye if I just understood. It's nothing to do with that. I'm into voice. My voice changes as I say this, you know. Your voice changes when you go into a different state of mind. So I understood that. And now I can work with people. I can work with people in singing, although I don't do that as much as spoken voice, because I get it. And in fact, when I work with people now, when they start to feel comfortable in their own shoes, and when they start to discover that being yourself is not about being perfect, it's being about you, warts and all, all sorts of things get better. Their technique improves. They stop waving their hands around manically. They stop looking stiff in the shoulders. They do it automatically without you having to point out all these defects. It comes out of being in a different state of mind. I know this is a huge question, but is it possible for you to summarise, what was it that you in your 20s needed to know? There's a pause here because I sort of know it. I'm trying to find a way to put it into words. I needed to know, well, I needed to know how, how okay I was, you know. I think, I think even from doing an English degree and then going off to London without a job and sort of starting tutoring people or whatever, was perhaps I thought that my family thought that I wasn't doing the academic thing. You know, I I had that sense of never quite being good enough. And what I needed to know was, of course I'm good enough. I mean, I want to tell you something just, just so recently, which is just so ridiculous. I sing in a small choir. And I was starting to struggle a little bit with high notes and thinking, oh, I'm getting old. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I'd probably better offer to myself to sing alto now. Uh-uh. And then by some sort of serendipity, I, I auditioned for a new choir. I hadn't done an audition, I think, since I was 25. And I'm quite a lot older than that now. And I did this audition and uh, they said, oh, I, I think we'd like you to sing first soprano. And I said, no, surely second, second soprano. No, we'd like you to sing first. And with that, with that acknowledgement... <laughs> that I was the person who had these wonderful high notes, they came back. You know, people saying that I could do it, I could do it. So it's about, I needed to know that I was okay, that I I could do it, that I could do it. That's all I needed to know. And that it didn't matter. It didn't matter what direction I went in. You went, I mean, singing and music was and still is this very, very competitive field. Do you think if you'd known all that, it would have put you in a position to become the professional soprano you wanted to be? Or actually, that wasn't what it was about. It would have actually given you the confidence to say, maybe that isn't the thing, but that's okay. I can, I can do other things and that, that's success in its own right. I can't give you the answer to that, 
But there is a question here about flexibility. You know, it's a well-known maxim. You have, you have to put in the hours and work at something to become good at it. But there is also the idea of being flexible. And I think maybe people are a little different in this. I mean, you, you do work on this, don't you? You know, how are the best ways to motivate people to do things? And, you know, maybe for me, flexibility was always important. I was probably incredibly motivated anyway, so I didn't need to thrash myself and say, work harder, work harder, work harder, do this one thing. I didn't need to do that. I think for me, meandering around in the world of creativity, it would have come up. I had no idea whether I would have been a, a successful singer or whether I wouldn't. I don't know that. I think for some people, the fact that you are a jack of all trades probably means you're more suited to do something different. I mean, my daughter became really good on the violin as a child. And then she was too interested in other things. And, and now, in her 30s, I realised that was absolutely right. She would never have been the, well, I don't think so, that single focus that is wonderful, but is also a narrowing. Mm, and I think it's very interesting. I mean, I come from music background. My planned route was music college until literally about three weeks before it was due to start. When something inside me said, you are not cut out to spend five to eight hours a day in a practice room by yourself. <laughs> and I couldn't articulate it in those terms. But I think like you, for me, I'm motivated by that the sort of flexibility and the variety. But I think it's hard to know when you've been been brought up through a system that values that focus. And as you say, we, we need that expertise to achieve it. Maybe we need more stories, actually. We need more stories going out there to young people of different ways. Because I have found with working with business, the, the corporations are so keen that you have followed the route into being employed by them. And if anyone has had a, a year that wasn't a proper gap year with a proper destination, they want to know exactly, well, what were you doing? And in fact, those in-between times when you're lost are so important. And the people who do best, in my mind, in their careers have had these lost moments. Absolutely, because it means we've had the courage to do different things and try different things. So, mm. so having established that flexibility and spontaneity, the courage to, to sort of own our creative selves is important, let's talk a bit more about the whole issue of communication within that. Because it, it strikes me, a lot of people I work with, I work with professional creatives and, and creative professionals, and we start off touching on the, the issue of, of how we see communication. And I think a lot of creatives, we're naturally very good at being spontaneous. Um, we're very good at sort of taking in things and responding to the moment, but it also quite easily tips into kind of overwhelm and, and fear. And particularly we're confronted environments that are perhaps less friendly with very commercial environments, very hardcore, very corporate, very driven. And it sort of sends us into a bit of a kind of flat spin. I mean, is that something you see? Are the creative people, what do we need as creative people to learn to communicate more powerfully? There are lots of answers to that. But the one I'd like to give you is that I think it's very important to meet people where they are. I worked with a, a female county councillor once who was she was so passionate not all are but she was so passionate about the good she wanted to do and she found she was ignored at every meeting she was ignored and she was finding it so incredibly frustrating so we worked together on her joining the people where they are because once you join with people then you can lead them easier so she instead of doing her 
but this is so important. You know, these young kids, they need a place to go. And she was full of this passion and it went nowhere. The next meeting she started off with, okay, so the bottom line here is, and then she started, you know, to make rational points on what she wanted. And she had everybody's ear and they were all listening to her. And then she was able to move to vital importance to people's well-being, to you know, the, the future of young people and so on. So she was able to move into that, but she couldn't start there. And I think as creatives, we need to be creative. We need to be actors, if you like. We need to be able to step into a different place and then lead it to where we want it to go. It seems to me often the challenge is that we bring all these agendas with us. So I was at a post-concert networking thing today and I could see the kind of the fear of kind of going, oh, I don't want to have to talk to that agent or that publicist because I somehow have to be impressive or get them to understand my work or something. And I don't, I don't know how to have those commercial conversations, which then triggers that whole kind of wave of, well, I'll only go and talk to the people I already know. So in your example, she was, she was familiar with those environments. She was able to perhaps go to change her way of communication to do that first. When it's something we're quite unfamiliar with and a little, seeing it a little bit antagonistic to what we want to achieve, how do we respond in that moment? Okay. Well, in networking, when you, you don't know really what's going to happen and you maybe see some people you want to, would like to talk to, I always think it's important to remember that they are human beings as well. They are so many people you meet in business. They, they have the voice, don't they? They have the voice of being incredibly confident business-like, organized, rational, and so on. And they can do that really well. But with a lot of these people, you can sense almost a slight tightness in the shoulders, almost as if they're wearing epaulets of, you know, I'm in my role now. Okay, I'm in the role, so I'm absolutely fine. And so you go up and, and you try to do that to somebody, somebody like that. Well, then you will stay. You will stay in that, okay, I'm feeling awfully false here, but, but let's do our best here. And we talk about rational things and it doesn't go anywhere. But if we remember the other side of them, which is they probably look in the bathroom mirror in the morning and think, oh, my goodness, I'm the chief executive. Here we go. And then they put on their epaulets as they walk through the door. If we remember, they're just human. I, I remember so clearly one particular networking session which had a really good outcome for me. And it's so often these serendipities. I didn't really want to go to the networking, but a friend of mine, she had this company and she was running it. So I, I felt out of loyalty, I would go. I wasn't looking forward to it. I didn't really want anything specially out of it, but I wanted to make an appearance. So I went in and I, I was introduced to somebody who worked for the civil service and was um, in charge of training for the cabinet office. And because I wasn't looking to get something out of it, I, I was just there to talk. And she said, what have you been doing? And I, I said to her, do you know, I've just been doing a study on charisma. It's the most amazing thing, I said. What actually makes somebody charismatic? Because you can have a violinist who's got their back to you on the stage, and yet that person has more charisma than the other person who's looking you in the face. What is it? Isn't it amazing about mm. charisma? Yes, it's fascinating. And she just leapt on this and said, do you know what I'm doing at the moment? We've got all this feedback of our, our senior managers, and everybody says they, they lack that, you know, walking your talk charisma. And I've got to find some sort of training on charisma. <laughs> so, so started a wonderful series, series of training courses for me with the cabinet office. Now, that was 
because I wasn't looking for anything in a way, because I was just walking in thinking, okay, hello, human being. I wonder where we might touch each other. I wonder what might come of this. And in a sense, just not letting myself completely believe those epaulets, that look of the person who's got the sharp little suit here, just not quite believing that. I think that's always quite useful too. I think that's really key, isn't it? I think when we're going in with assumptions that that the other person in that room is somehow antagonistic or wants something from us, wants to exploit us in some way, or then it immediately puts us on our guard. Yes. Whereas actually, if if you're coming across someone in most environments, they they naturally will have some interest. In you. And I think a lot of the time that that creators forget, forget that less creative people actually want to be more like them. Yes, yes, absolutely. Actually, everyone really dreams of being a, you know, an artist or a composer or a dancer. And it's actually feel quite intimidated because this person has so much, clearly has so much talent. And what do I say to them? Yes, yeah, so it works both ways. Isn't that so true? I think it really I mean, the, does. Yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, the one thing that just never works is when you're, you're both wearing your roles, like a sort of glossy exterior, you can't connect because there's nothing to connect. You're, you've, you've got this glossy exterior. The only way ever to connect with people and therefore get something good out of it because then you're being real with each other is to, well, we talk a lot about vulnerability, don't we, these days? Thank you, Brene Brown. But um, for ages, it's been that idea of, of the, the armour, the armour outside, and you have to get through the armour to connect. And inside the armour is always that jelly that I don't feel very good about this, Jenny, before you can get to the core of a person. So you you can only, only connect with allowing the fact that, okay, I might be a bit vulnerable here, but I won't put on my armour. Because if I put on my armour of pretending to be something I'm not, I'm not, I haven't got any chance. I haven't got any chance of anything interesting happening. That's really key, I think. So one question I want to ask you. So you talk about a lot about the importance of, of spontaneity and authenticity in, in communication and not having this armour, not being overprepared. But can it be both a skill that we have to practice and something spontaneous? It's, it's a getting rid of stuff, I think. So yes, that's the practice. The practice is getting rid of stuff. So it's not... Judy Dent once once said she she doesn't like film nearly as much as as acting because acting you you're on the edge of your seat because something new might happen something something interesting and different might happen whereas in film you don't have that and I I thought that's interesting she she likes to feel the fear so so I think come back to your question again you probably need to cut this bit out cut <laughs> your question what was it it's whether it's addressing the idea of whether that could be a skill and spontaneous. Because what, what I see is that people come, you go into a meeting or something and it hasn't gone brilliantly. So therefore, you come out and go, I, I, I'm no good at presenting to agents. Or that, that felt uncomfortable, therefore I'm no good at it. And it seems to me that, that, that spontaneity and that taking off the armour and being vulnerable is actually something we should see as, as a skill that we should that we can practice and, and get better at without it undermining the fact that it is about being spontaneous. Yes, I think the big practice is uh, being, being at ease, which just means relaxing a bit, which means breathing, which just means taking a breath. 
and you know assuring yourself yeah things go well things go badly but it's okay it's okay so I think there's a lot of that because once you do actually breathe and release a bit you're much more able to be spontaneous so I think there's quite a lot too about remembering to give yourself positive feedback for example if I decide okay, I am going to put myself in the firing line and I am going to say yes to talking at this meeting and I don't feel quite up to it. I I give myself the pat on the back afterwards that I did it because my first time, why would it be wonderful? But I did it. Whereas what, what I do exceedingly well is I come out and the one thing that went wrong, I think, oh, why did I do it? Why did I do that? one little thing or you get feedback from a training course and and 24 people have thought it was absolutely fantastic and one person had this sort of serious criticism and then you say to yourself I knew it was no good I knew it was no good I think you know caring for yourself is really important in this and probably having the the odd supporter is is good too the odd friend who understands that you know you're trying to do this but you're trying to do it in a way that's more true to you it's not so much of an act is it also recognising that when you're doing these things, meetings or whether it's standing up in public and speaking, whether it's a podcast interview or something, that it's okay to get to the end of it and feel completely wrung out <laughs> and, and therefore focusing on the end of it when you're new to it? And that's just kind of normal because you're, you've, put, you've given your all into it. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's not a message that you're no good at it. <laughs> I'm laughing at you because I haven't done many podcasts, but actually I'm feeling quite energized by this experience today oh, well, I'm very glad <laughs> but, about that. <laughs> but um well yes yes absolutely although yes of course you can be wrung out at the same time I, I think that the more we we allow ourselves to let go and breathe the less exhausting it is often that um it's it's often when we're really trying very hard that it becomes absolutely exhausting so there is always that always that thing of Yes, I feel scared. Well, why wouldn't I? There's too much in the media of, of the other side of things, of people being instant successes. But that's not the general story. The general story is we try one thing and it's fantastic, and we try another and it's not fantastic. There's a picture that's um, meant to be by Leonardo da Vinci that's just come up recently. It is absolutely awful. It's <laughs> the most dreadful picture, and they've decided now that it's it, after many, many years, that it is authentic. And I, I think, well, why should your name mean that every single thing you've ever done is absolutely brilliant? I mean, these things are absurd, aren't they? Everyone has to have failures. Of course they do. Yeah. And we need to apply that same to us, don't we, to be kinder and more caring to ourselves. So what would you say to someone who's got some kind of communication challenge coming up in the next few days, something that's maybe feeling a little bit scary or intimidating or unusual? Well, number one is good for you. This is this is wonderful. <laughs> you might be feeling absolutely awful now, but of course you are if you haven't done it before. So good talking to yourself. It's great that I'm doing this thing. And if it's the first time, it's going to be a learning experience, whatever. So there's that talking to. Number two is is always, you know, doing what you can to prepare, but knowing that there are always unpredictables. There are always spontaneous moments, so you can't sew it down completely, but it is good to know what you're talking about and what you intend to do. So that's always very, very good. 
I would say practice speaking things out loud. Just try it, particularly without all your notes. Just try saying sentences because the thinking brain only really works when you're thinking and speaking. So if you're if you know you're going to be just reading everything, it's harder to sound interesting. So it's quite good to just walk around the room practicing some of the things that you want to say. And then the other thing is that there are one or two things that can, can help you before you go in. Let me think of two or three. One is always just remember consciously to take a breath before you speak. It sounds completely obvious, but it's the one thing we don't do. In fact, people often take a breath, like I'm doing now, then stop, uh, and then start to speak. So they do take a breath, but they stop. So this idea is you take a breath and then you speak. Good morning, everybody. So that's quite a gets you started, gets you over the edge. Is that enough for now? No, let's have, let's have another practical one. That's great. Let's, let's... <laughs> All right. The other thing, another thing is that people often think I need to, I need to stay calm. So they give themselves a talking to, they're sitting down beforehand and they're saying, keep calm, keep calm, keep calm. And they sort of hold their, their arms to their, themselves so that they don't flap around and their chest doesn't beat too fast. And uh, so they do everything to, to try and make everything go still. That is completely the opposite to what you need to do. Anybody who, is, uh, who loves speaking and is ready to speak usually looks like a... Uh, a short distance runner before they start. They're, they're tapping, they're, they're moving, they're, they're all ready to go. They're, they're getting their limbs moving. You can see them as they're being introduced by somebody. They're kind of up for it. So if you're feeling really scared and you can move, go for a very, very fast walk to the loo before you start and then a nice fast walk back so that you're moving. And then when you stand up or you, you move onto a podium to speak, do it with a huge amount of energy. You will notice this, actually, in uh, you know, famous people or presidents and prime ministers. They often walk very fast up to the podium. Yes, the sort of bouncing up to the podium, isn't there? I'm yes. younger. I'm younger. <laughs> I'm really young. Um, but it's because it gets things moving. And then you hit the ground running. So get everything moving physically. And if you have to sit, then wiggle your toes in your shoes and get them dancing. So, all right, I'm ready for this. I'm ready to run. So that would be another one. And there's probably an element of that is actually listening to your body, isn't it? Because that's probably our bodies are pushing us to do that rather than we're we're telling ourselves to stay calm because it's actually not the natural state to be in. Sort of. It's sort of that, except the thing that many people are very aware of is that their heart is beating very fast. So they become aware of their body and, and it scares them witless because everything's shaking and they're pounding heart. Yes. So this idea of energy is uh, almost an idea of, of the, of the red arrows, you know, the, the airplanes that run and everything can go very fast. That's fine. Run, but it's all going to go in the same direction. So too much awareness of what's actually going on in your body can be scary. So just concentrate on, I'm going to get myself moving, ready, ready to hit, hit the ground running. And then the lovely breath, the lovely breath. (gasps) Hello, everybody. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Fantastic. Very practical tips. And I think equally applicable to just meeting somebody for the first time or even on the phone, isn't it? Not just addressing a big audience. Yes. Yes. People who often march up somebody with their hand outstretched to shake the hand. It's actually quite an energising thing to do. 
So even if it's not your usual thing, it's quite nice to think, I will go to that person. You know, I will move forward because it gives them confidence that you want to meet them as well. So, yes, it works works in in all scenarios, I think. And they are humans as well, no matter how big their epaulets at that that moment. (laughs) They are humans as well. We are all human. Yes, we're the two legged ones. Yes. (laughs) So, Judy, where can people connect with you? Well, I have a website which is called judyapps.co.uk. And the other name I go with is Voice of Influence, which was my first book. So my my email is judy at voiceofinfluence.co.uk. Brilliant. And those links will be on the, the show notes at creativelifeshow.com. Judy, thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing that. For me, there's a real things about trusting in your own your own ability to be flexible and be spontaneous, but don't let that override the need to prepare and address your own mindset. These are things that can be, we can actually take control of. Yes, wonderful. It's a huge pleasure to talk to you, Joanna. It's fantastic what you're doing. I've really enjoyed the hour. Oh, me too. And and thank you for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed it as much as Judy and I have. <laughs> so just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or your regular podcast app. And then you get all the episodes as they go live. Or come and subscribe at creativelifeshow.com with your email address. And share this with somebody else. Who else do you know who is perhaps not as confident as they would like to be in their interactions, in their communications, and wants their own creativity and creative impact to skyrocket? So have a wonderfully creative week and I will be back with you soon. 